Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a new Bible study podcast presented by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell, to talk about the Gospel of Mark. In this episode, our final episode about the Gospel of Mark, Scott will talk about Mark chapters 14 through 16. We'll talk about the woman at Bethany, the Last Supper, and one of the lesser-known feasts in Judaism. Now, we've asked Pillar co-founder Ed Condon to record the readings for each episode of Sunday School to help you better engage with Scott's commentary. If you've already done the reading ahead of time, you can jump ahead to about the 15-minute mark in this episode. But if you haven't, or if you just like hearing the readings, here's Ed with Mark chapters 14 through 16. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some there who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought out an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to him, to that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And Sun stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So the Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. 
When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bound a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, They will cast out demons. They will speak new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Where we kind of left off last time, Jesus showcased the hypocrisy of the temple. He left the temple. He announced the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple. He foresaw its coming. He said there's an immediacy to it. And when it happens, it's going to be like the world is being flipped upside down. Because, again, the temple for the for the Jewish people was the center of everything. I mean, this was the center the of their... The navel sp- of the earth, right? The navel of the earth. Absolutely. Because it was, it was believed, some traditions believed it was like the last the capstone of creation back in Genesis when God created. Mm-hmm. But but even after that, because the temple was the dwelling place of God, it was the spiritual center of Israel. It was the economic center. It was the political center because everything sort of revolved around this. And mm-hmm. so... 
foretelling the destruction of the temple. Number one, that's a pretty jarring thing to do in a culture, but it also evoked memories of their darkest chapter, which was the Babylonian exile, when the temple had once before been destroyed and everything was flipped upside down. So what Jesus is saying is dangerous. Mm -hmm. But the reason that it's important is that the temple, there's two things about the temple. Number one, he showcased the hypocrisy. He said it was like the, the fig tree, right? That was, and it's not the temple building. It's the way that people were treating it, of course, right? Right. That it was like Israel had become in a lot of ways like a fig tree that was acting like it was bearing fruit, mm. but it was giving the signs, the appearance of giving fruit, but but in truth but it was really not. It. Yeah. Right. Because what the temple was supposed to be was a house of prayer for all of the nations, but they had made it into den of robbers and thieves. Yeah. But it's not fundamentally that the temple is bad. It's that Jesus is usurping the temple. Mm -hmm. Because what is the temple? The temple is meant to be the place where humans and God meet. The Garden of Eden was meant to be a macro temple. Mm. And the temple that was built thereafter was meant to be a microcosm of the Garden of Eden, quite Uh frankly. It was Mm -hmm. meant to be all of creation kind of in miniature. Because as the story of salvation history goes on, our sin moves us further and further away from God. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something we do to ourselves, but salvation history demonstrates that as God kind of goes deeper and deeper into this temple facility until Jesus basically comes and breaks the doors wide open and says that we we have access again to the God who made us. So all that is sort of a prologue to say that it's not that Jesus just hates temples or churches or structures. He says the way in which... Or is indicting, I think often there's a sense of that... There's a concern that this is read in a way that is an indictment of um, Judaism. Or yeah, absolutely right. Reason. And people have read it that way, right. much to, to, to much um, many consequences. It's not. Jesus is saying this is something that the people of God have fallen into. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a reason that we begin every mass with a call to repentance, yeah. lest we, as the people of God, fall to the same kinds of things. Or, in fact, because in a certain way we acknowledge that we have. And ex- we do, right? Absolutely right. right. Even better said. Yeah. All right, so where I want to pick it up is after Jesus sort of predicts the end of these things, which does, I think we mentioned last time, points forward to the end of the world. Right, as we know it. As we know it. Yes, exactly so he, right. Jesus said it'll be the end of the world as we know it. But and he, I feel fine. He feels fine. Right? Okay. <laughs> I okay. That could have gone either way. So uh, about 10 people just turned the show off right now. They're no, like, they like, didn't. They, they turned were... it up. Went <laughs> <laughs> for the volume. Okay, so again, to put us back in context, Jesus just said, okay, the temple is going to be destroyed, and here are all the signs that will um, that will go along with it. You know, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, crazy things. Okay, verse 32. I'm in chapter 13, verse 32. But of that day or that hour, no one knows. What day and what hour? The destruction of the temple. Right. Which, again, is resonant for this particular historical context, because it's going to happen within... What, 40, 40 years? Yeah, a generation. But it also points ahead toward the end of time as we know it for us. So this matters to us. Okay, of that day or that hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what do we do? Verse 33. So take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man who's going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but there's one word in there that is repeated more than any of the other words. Watch. Watch, 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 watch. I think he says it four times. So take heed and watch. What is the hour that we're supposed to watch for? Well, 
you know, ostensibly it's, it's the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. But what Jesus does in this little parable is there's three layers of meaning. There's probably more than that. But there's three things that Jesus is doing. He's talking about this hour, which is the end of the temple. Mm-hmm. What's the remedy for the fear of not knowing? The remedy is watch. Be constantly aware. You don't know the time. So he gives this parable. He said, it's like this. It's like a man who goes on a journey and he leaves the servants in charge and they need to be ready for when the master comes home. And he gives you four possibilities, four hours, four watches, you could say, for when the master could come home. And so what are the four watches? It's evening, Mm -hmm. midnight, Mm -hmm. cock crow, or morning. Right. Do those ring a bell? Yeah, to you? those are the hours of the liturgy of the hours. Those are our liturgical hours, aren't they? Not? I wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah, they absolutely are. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, they absolutely are. They, but some hours, maybe this so is the some chicken. hours of the liturgy of the hours, and maybe it's the chicken or the egg um, because there's something more immediate that they are as well. Oh, hours that are will be instrumental in the passion itself. Absolutely. So that's why I mentioned this. It's almost like a little table of contents because this oh, is the way in which Mark frames the passion. So um, the Last Supper, of course, is eaten at evening. Mm-hmm. At midnight, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Cock crow, which is sunrise. That's when Jesus is on trial and Jesus uh, Peter denies him three times. Mm-hmm. And it says in the morning, chapter 15, he begins his way to the cross. Yeah. So Mark is using these four different events, these four different watches to overlay the events of the passion, which yeah. is kind of cool. So, yeah. so there's layers of meaning here, right? We're talking about the end of the temple, but we're also talking about the destruction of Jesus right. because Jesus will be destroyed in a certain sense. He right. will be killed right. and he's con- not conflating. I think conflating is usually negative, right? He's, he's mixing the end of the temple, the end of Jesus with the return of the master. Yeah. So they're all kind of mixed together. Why? Well, he's making a point. What? That Jesus is the new temple. Mm-hmm. And w- what's interesting about this, I mean, there's so many things that are interesting about this, but what's, I think, profoundly beautiful, which is a good setup for the rest of the story, is that in Jewish tradition, the king, which Jesus has already declared himself to be, mm-hmm. the king is meant to embody the fate of his people. The yeah. king is meant to undergo the sufferings of the people. He embodies what's happening. Mm-hmm. So there's a story... Um, in the Old Testament, of a guy named Hezekiah, yeah. who, when the Assyrian army is battering down the doors of Jerusalem, he gets ill and sicker yeah. and sicker mm-hmm. until the Assyria backs off and he miraculously heals. Yeah. There's another king, I think it's Uzziah, mm-hmm. who, as the people are in, in grave sin and becoming unclean, he actually gets leprosy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this tradition that the king is meant to embody mm-hmm. the people. What we've been seeing all through the Gospels is that... One of the things that Jesus is constantly warning people against is going after false messiahs, following these political, militaristic messiahs that are promising something that is not God's will. And those people, if you think about it, the people who reject Jesus's warnings about that, who go after the false messiahs because they give the message of victory, of, of taking down Caesar, of destroying Herod, of taking down Rome. I mean, what's going to befall most of those people? They'll be killed. Yeah. Many of them will be crucified because crucifixion is the evil construct of the Romans meant to humiliate and torture people guilty of treason. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not a, a consequence for pickpockets or thieves, right? It is oh. very specifically for people convicted of treason against the empire. I, I have a question about that. Yeah, please. Maybe this has to be a bonus episode. But what about the good thief? Yeah, I think we're getting there. The, the word for... No, <laughs> I, I, no, no, no. No, because it comes up. That's an important question. Um, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he calls the temple a den of robbers mm-hmm. or thieves. The word is lestai in Greek. L-E-S-T-A-I, I guess, would be transliterated. You ain't got no alibi. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where I was going next. 
Um, but it doesn't just mean like a thief in the sense of it's not Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread. It's a revolutionary. A less die is a very specific meaning. Oh, so the so they're the, stealing the from the empire, the in cross, a which is not I realize in the, in the crucifixion narrative of uh, no, not of Mark, of Mark but it does but show the up good in others. Thief at the cross. Is a sort of political revolution. He's the good political revolutionary, I suppose. Oh, yeah, I see. because quite frankly, Rome didn't have. If you were a thief, if you'd stolen something, if you'd mm-hmm. committed most crimes, the amount of resources the crucifixion actually takes on the part of Rome is oh. enormous. Oh. It requires a lot of manpower, lumber, oh. time, resources. It's it's a big production, Relative and the reason to just. Hanging someone. Or, or stoning them or throwing them off a cliff or something. Mm-hmm. You usually stone someone or hang them or, or okay. do something. But crucifixion was meant to demonstrate publicly in a really massive sense the consequence for daring to oppose the like great and powerful putting realm. putting your head on a pike. And yeah, exactly right. British Empire. It's exactly right. Okay. So, I mean, it was a resource-heavy way to punish people, and it was so that it could be seen. Yeah. It was meant to make an example. Yeah. So, yeah, the good thief, you know, I, I don't know what his circumstances are, but he's more than just, you know, a, a petty robber. thief or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So that's important. But again, that's also what Jesus is accusing the leadership in Jerusalem and the people of God of falling into. Mm-hmm. And and it's significant. I'm Raya's St. John Chrysostom. You know, he talks about when we when we don't give to the poor, we're actually stealing from them mm-hmm. because there's something due to the poor. Right. When we follow false gods or false messiahs, we're stealing from God because there's something that's due to God, yeah. as Aquinas talks about, right? Our, right. our, our worship is due to him. Mm-hmm. So thief actually works because we're stealing something in a certain yeah. sense. So anyway, um, what I was mentioning was that Jesus spends a good deal of the Gospels warning people against that, mm-hmm. against going after false messiahs because there's real consequences. Number yeah. one, you should follow me because I am truly Lord, but also going down that path is actually going to lead to your destruction. Yeah. And so the people who reject Jesus's message and go after false messiahs, many of them will be killed. Mm-hmm. Many of them will be crucified. Mm-hmm. The one thing that Jesus keeps doing is warning people against that. And yet Jesus himself undergoes the punishment for the people who reject him. He takes on the punishment of those. But he also, so what about those who don't reject him? What about those who follow Jesus? They're crucified. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you you reject Jesus, you're probably going to get crucified. Right. If you follow Jesus, you're probably going to get crucified. The difference is that... Well, I don't know the extent to which, the, but the difference is the meaning of the crucifixion. Exactly right. That's exactly right. But in addition to that, or maybe overarching that, one of the things that's, I think, profoundly beautiful is that if Jesus really is king, then he's the king of those who follow him and the king of those who reject him. If he's really king of the world, then he's king over all the people who hate him as well. And sure. so the king takes on the fate of both those oh, who are faithful like and unfaithful. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's in a certain... So it's, it's appropriate. It's also kind of beautiful. But also, I don't know, it gives... It's, it's a Christian witness of the way that Christians are supposed to engage with the world. We're actually meant to walk with people, to bear the burdens of people. And to, I find fascinating that even in the, um, even in the Lord's death of crucifixion yeah. is a sort of witness to that. Exactly right. Um, Israelite kingship. That's, That's really exactly good. right. That's exactly right. Actually, Paul later on in his epistles will talk about what Jesus does. So the, the, uh, well, he talks about it being a, a parade. Mm-hmm. He says what Jesus is actually doing on it. Cause the reason that Rome developed crucifixion was to basically parade and shame these would be revolutionaries. Sure. What Paul says Jesus is doing is actually making a mockery and a parade of death itself. Yeah. It's death that hangs on the cross. Yeah. That's what's being shamed. That's yeah. what's being mocked in mm-hmm. this elaborate thing, which is kind of beautiful yeah. in and of itself.
Okay, so now verse chapter 14, verse 1. Now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then I want to talk about what those feasts were and how to distinguish them. The chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, because there's going to be a tumult of the people. Mm-hmm. The tensions are rising, right? Jesus came into Jerusalem with all this fanfare. People were flipping out. And then he exposed very publicly all the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. People are paying attention. Some people are kind of taking sides. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are angry. A lot of people are really compelled. So everyone's noticing, okay, there's a lot of tension building. Yeah. And there's also expectations historically of big revolutionary movements happening during important Jewish feasts. Because there's a lot of people around. Um, You know, I think Rome's freaked out. Herod's probably freaked out. Nobody wants a big thing to happen. Herod particularly doesn't want a big thing because Rome's going to hear about it and he's going to be in big trouble. So nobody wants trouble. Mm -hmm. So they're like, let's wait till after Passover. Right. But that's not going to happen. Because if you arrest a a sort of political protester on the 4th of July, it's just a big Exactly right. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Got it. Okay, so verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at table, a woman with an alabaster jar of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Uh, a woman came, sorry. With an alabaster jar of ointment of pure nard, very costly, she broke the jar and she poured it over his head. But there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment thus wasted? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they reproached her. Literally in Greek, it says they snorted at her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you will, you can do good to them. But you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burying. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mm -hmm. So part of why I wanted to kind of start with the story of this woman is because I want to fulfill what Jesus said, that it should be told in memory of her. Um, But this is a really fascinating scene. So Jesus is probably staying in Bethany. That was kind of his first stop on Palm Sunday. That's where they stole the animals. So um, he's at Bethany. We know his good friends, uh, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They live in Bethany. So he's staying at this house. He's at dinner at someone's house. And I think sometimes, some of us have heard this story before, but I think sometimes we, we read right past some of the really weird stuff in scripture because it's the Bible and they do weird stuff back yeah. then. But Jesus is at dinner in somebody's house. There's probably people gathered around. Mm-hmm. Some random woman comes in off the street, mm-hmm. takes an alabaster jar of this oil, yeah. which is incredibly expensive, dumps it all over Jesus yeah. during the dinner party, yeah. which is weird. I mean, it sounds like the Met Gala. It's dinner and weird stuff is happening. It's dinner and weird stuff. But that's usually planned weird stuff, isn't it? This is a surprise weird stuff. Yeah. So we read this and, you know, I think one of the other gospels says it was actually Judas who was snorting at her and complaining. But, you know, in their defense, this is a weird, you know, Jesus is just trying to have dinner. Maybe he's in a conversation with someone. Who the heck is this person, you know, dumping all this stuff? This is a really important story, and this actually forms, we've talked about Markin sandwiches mm-hmm. before. This is one half of a, of a Markin sandwich with two different women. And what's going on here, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, number one, who is this, which we don't know? Right. And number two, why does she have what she has? So the, the ointment that she pours out over Jesus, it says that it was worth about 300 denarii, which mm-hmm. again, probably doesn't mean much to most of us. 300 denarii would be about the equivalent in modern terms of about a year's wages for kind of a, you know, a, oh, a wow. so regular one jar worth like a, a year's worth of pay. Yeah. So, I mean, translate that to modern terms. I mean, this, whatever she's pouring is worth 50,000 $50, $50, $50, $50, $50, $50, $50, $50, $50, $50. So all of a sudden now the apostles who are like, oh, what is she doing? Right. 
changes. It's not like oh, you know, she poured she this really sold nice this stuff. Stuff you know that it was just like Gatorade or something. No, I mean, right. She, she poured forty thousand dollars. Can you imagine what we could have done right. with forty, fifty thousand dollars? And even I think now, if someone, if there was some liturgical thing that used. $40,000 worth of incense, I think people would... <laughs> what? That's a lot of incense. That's a lot or like a really beautiful chalice, chalice that was right worth, down. you know. Yeah. I don't know how you'd... How you'd even... Burn through $40,000 worth of incense. No, I Take a while. either. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, that, that incense are in uh, Spain. Isn't there a <coughs> yes, gigantic... Yes, big incense are in Spain. I, now I kind of want to see their incense pills and <laughs> write a pillar story about it. But that's neither here nor there. It's somewhere. Um, but so so this woman is pouring out something that is profoundly costly. Yeah, we don't know exactly who she is, and we don't know where we got this. But I have I have a guess. So why would a would a woman in this culture and women you know were were not always treated with the dignity they deserved in this right. culture? Mm-hmm. Why would she have something that was worth that much money? Right. I mean, there's only so many options here. Right. And what I'm compelled by, so some people think that maybe she was a prostitute and this was earnings or something like that. Maybe I think the more likely scenario, and again we have to guess as to why a woman would have something of this much value is that perhaps it was a dowry. What's a dowry? A dowry is what the family would actually give to the bride to go into a marriage with that basically would start their life together. Yeah. Which, depending on the family, this actually could be something so like this. So she's sort of mystically uniting. Like, it's a, if this is... If the... If the oil is a kind of a dowry, for her to pour it on the Lord is a kind of like, is it a kind of mystical betrothal? Is there a symbol of kind of her committing herself or consecrating herself to the Lord in a certain way? That's a great insight that I didn't even think. I didn't, my, my mind didn't even go there. Absolutely. Well, no, absolutely is, maybe, right. I, maybe consecrated virgins say that the Blessed Mother is the sort of proto-consecrated virgin and that would be. But is this a sort of virginal consecration to the Lord in a certain way? This is the thing which I had by which I would get married and rather than give it to my husband and therefore... To effectively to render myself ineligible to be married, I give it to the Lord. Is it a kind of consecration? I think so. Okay. Again, we're, we're speculating sure. on exactly yeah. what's going on here, uh-huh. but I think it is. And what really kind of drives that point home is, again, this this mark and sandwich. So if, if that's true, yes, she's consecrating herself to Jesus, but in a very literal sense, she is pouring her entire life onto Jesus. Yeah. She's pouring herself, her being, her future, her, her hopes, her dreams, her plans onto Jesus. Yeah. And again, it reminds us of the story about, what was it, like a chapter and a half before, of the widow at the temple who was at the treasury. It's in chapter 12, verse 41, where they were at the treasury, remember? And they were watching all the rich people put in the big coins that were making the big clanging noises. And then a poor widow put in, what, two copper pennies. And Jesus said, well, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had her whole bios, it says in Greek, her whole whole living, her whole self. Uh So what do you have? You have two parallel stories of two women pouring their entire lives into what? Two different temples. Right. And if you follow the story, so right after the widow who pours her whole life onto the Jerusalem temple, Jesus launches into an exposition on how that temple will be destroyed. Yeah. Immediately after, you have another woman who pours her whole life onto another temple, Jesus. And in the very next chapter, that temple, too, will be destroyed. Right. Two women, two temples, whole life. Wow. Only one of the temples, though, will come back. Sure. Only one will, will be risen from the dead. Sure. Which is Which is a pretty profound statement. Yeah. And again, in no way is this to kind of downplay or, or, or badmouth the widow in the right. temple. Yeah, that temple's not coming back. But again, her, her intention of what she's doing was right. right. This is the right thing to do. So it's a beautiful scene, um, which is what kind of primes the pump for the Last Supper. 
So we're still in chapter 14, verse 12. It says this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city, because they're in Bethany, remember? Go into the city, you'll meet a man carrying a jar of water and meet him. He will meet you, sorry, and follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the householder, the teacher says, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? Mm -hmm. And he's going to show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. Uh, The disciples went went out into the city and they found it just as he had told them. This is um, one of a, a couple little stories that show up in Mark of plans that Jesus somehow has made or that he has worked out totally outside of the knowledge of the disciples. Yeah, the right, ones who are right. closest to him. Yeah, they're always he had around. worked out with this jar of water guy to meet someone. Somehow. Yeah, right. Jesus has things that we have not even dreamed of prepared. It's yeah. not just that you're going to meet this guy and he'll you know take you to this place. The room's there. It's yeah. ready. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, the Passover feast is is a time when you know, thousands of people are flocking in. It's probably right. pretty so hard to find real estate. You'd have to book the room in advance. or Presumably. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. But there's just a beautiful scene of God's providence that he, he always has it. He's got his plan laid out. It's like, yeah. Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Yeah. So it's a beautiful little scene. But what Mark points out is uh, he makes a distinction between two different feasts that are going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think Passover is the one that most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. But um, some of the different gospels seem to be confusing on where exactly they place the Last Supper. And sometimes they say, well, it's the day of preparation. Sometimes they say it's the day of Passover. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a little confusing. And what I want to point out is that in the time of Jesus, there were three different feasts that happened in pretty quick succession with each other. That if we understand what those feasts were, I think it makes the story a little bit more rich. Yeah. So the first one was Passover, of course, uh-huh. which would always fall on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, uh-huh. um, which, you know, we, we traditionally celebrate on Holy Thursday, right. the Passover meal. But Wait, which we commemorate as Catholics on Holy Thursday, but... What did I say? You said celebrate, but... Contemporary Jews would You're celebrate right. Passover on the 14th day of Nisan, right? Yeah, Which has right. to do with the cycles of the moon. Th- that's exactly okay. right. Okay. It, would, it would be on the full moon. Yeah, okay. exactly right. Um, now, in Jesus' time, here's where it gets really confusing. Okay. And we don't have to go too deeply into the weeds here. But in the time of Jesus, it seems clear, or it seems to be the case, not just because of the Gospels, but other writings as well, that by the time of Jesus, all three of these feasts kind of got blurred together. Uh-huh. And they all kind of became just one giant feast. I see. But in the book of Leviticus, where the feasts are kind of laid out, uh-huh. and that's where we read about the seven Jewish feasts that right. make up their liturgical year, yeah. they're, they're laid out pretty distinctly. And what you would have is, again, Passover being on the 14th. Yeah. And immediately the day after would begin what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, again, in the Gospel of Mark, it seems, and historically, I think this is accurate, that they kind of became one. Like we might say, oh, because it was Christmas, but we might mean that it was Christmas or the Feast of St. Stephen or even the Feast of the Holy Family. But we might sort of talk about the things as it was Christmas. I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is a fair analogy. Okay. Um, And they probably celebrated it that way as well. Uh But again, from the beginning... But each thing has its own meaning. Exactly right. So Passover, of course, which is what the Last Supper is, it's commemorating the release from slavery in Egypt. When Israel, back in the book of Exodus, was enslaved in in Egypt for 400 years, and they had forgotten who God was. They had probably fallen into worshiping, worshiping Egyptian gods. God shows up, works through this guy named Moses to... uh, The whole story of the Exodus is one of 
a God who loves his people, who have fallen into worship other gods. It's kind of, it's resonant with the gospels. They followed after things that were not God, that were attractive and that promised whatever they promised, like the false messiahs. Moses shows up. He performs the 10 plagues, which in Hebrew are called the mighty deeds, Mm -hmm. which I like better than plagues because they were meant to show God's power, his authority. Again, we're straight back in the gospel of Mark. They're demonstrations of God's authority. And every single one of the plagues was meant to be a sign to a god of Egypt that was being put to death. Yeah. So every one of the plagues is aimed at one of the deities that was worshipped in Egypt. Like the, the Nile River was worshipped as a god. The first plague turns the Nile to blood. It's like, oh, shoot, that god is dead. Right. right? And out of the Nile River comes you know all these reptiles and frogs. Frogs were considered as a god. And with no water that's healthy anymore because it's poisoned by blood, all the frogs are in the street and they're dead everywhere. So you're looking at carcasses of dead gods yeah. all over the place and flies were considered gods. There was gods that controlled the weather pattern. So there's hailstorms and darkness. Yeah. And God is trying to, I, at the risk of sounding dumb, I always think of the story of the Exodus like the plot of most of the romantic comedies I've ever seen. Which What's the plot of the romantic comedy? The, the classic rom-com plot is you got the girl, right? And she's somehow with the wrong guy. Right. And the good guy shows up and basically has to put the other guy to shame and show why he's, he's the, the better, better one. Right. It's basically the story of the Exodus. Possibly while buying her independent bookstore or... (laughs) Right. Right. Which is what God is doing. Because, again, the rom-com works because it's it's a romance. God wants us to to be in relationship with him. So, anyway, that's what's happening in the Exodus. The the ultimate, the the climactic event of this, as Pharaoh, you know, refused to let the people go, refused to heed that there was a God who actually wanted his people back. This is the first place in the Bible where Israel is called God's firstborn son. And so God's fatherhood is always evocative of the Exodus story because of that. And at the end of the day, or at the end of the the story, the climax of it, I suppose, God says, okay, you will not let my firstborn son go free. So Pharaoh, I'm going to take your firstborn son. And what Israel is asked to do, of course, is take a lamb which is, this is a, there's a little bit of a debate in scholarship, but it seems that the lamb was connected to one of the gods of Egypt, although sort of indirectly. Yeah. But they were to take a lamb, which I, I believe would have been a worship symbol in Egypt, mm-hmm. and they were to sacrifice it. They were yeah. to kill the lamb, which yeah. was illegal in Egypt. It was actually not just illegal, it was a capital offense. It was deicide right. to put a god of Egypt to death. Right. Capital offense. And so Israel was asked, number one, to commit this capital offense. And then take all the evidence of their capital offense, i.e. the blood, right. and smear it on their doorposts right. just so everyone could see. Yeah. And then they were to eat the lamb, eat that God as a way of showing that this is not a God. This is yeah. powerless. This is nothing. Yeah. And wow. if you remember the story, they were to do it. They were to roast the lamb. If it was too big for their family, they had to share with a neighbor, but they had to consume the whole thing. Right. And they were to eat it, if you remember, on their feet, sandals on their feet, their backpacks packed, right? Don't sit down. Don't allow enough time for the the, um, yeast to rise and the bread because you're going to have to make a run for it. Because one of two things were about to happen. After having smeared the evidence of their capital crimes on their doorposts, either the Egyptian authorities were going to come and put them to death Mm -hmm. or God was going to do what he said he would do and show up and set them free. Either way, get ready to run for it. Yeah. That's what the Passover celebrates or commemorates. Been effectively, if God didn't show up, they would effectively be have made this an unbelievably brazen act of blasphemy. 
I, I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Which speaks to the faith that it would have taken to actually perform right. the Passover, sure. which is remarkable. Yeah. And the idea was that the angel of the Lord would pass over those houses with the blood, sure. and the firstborn sons of every other family would, would meet their end, sure. quite frankly. Yeah. So that's what they're celebrating here. But in conjunction with that, so you would do the meal and have the lamb and all the, the symbolic foods on Passover night. But... According to the Old Testament, the next day would begin an eight-day feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh-huh. which went hand-in-hand hand with Passover. Right. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was this. For eight days, they were to eat only unleavened bread as a remembrance of that time that we were in Egypt and we were waiting for God to show up and we were hoping that he would come and set us free. And it was so intense and so immediate that we didn't even have time to let the bread rise. Right. So for eight days, they would eat unleavened bread. Right. Now, here's what's kind of cool about it. I discovered so this a few years. Passover and then a celebration that commemorates the time after the Passover. Or leading up to it, I suppose. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Or the time around it, okay. surrounding it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but here's what's cool about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that I discovered a couple years back. The bread that they were supposed to eat for those eight days. Now, again, originally it would start the day after Passover, <coughs> which uh-huh. in the time of Jesus would put the Feast of Unleavened Bread on Friday, on uh-huh. Good Friday. Okay. And on that Friday, starting on that Friday for eight days after, they were to eat this bread. And the bread held three different titles. And it was called, number one, the bread of affliction. Yeah. Because they remembered it as the bread that we had to eat when we were enslaved. And it was hard. And Pharaoh made us build those, you know, build the bricks and do all the stuff. So it was the bread of affliction. But it was also because of what God did through it. It was the bread of redemption. Mm -hmm. And so they were eating the bread of affliction, which became our bread of redemption. Mm -hmm. And because it was the bread that we eat to remember our redemption, they called it the bread of thanksgiving. The bread of Eucharistia. So think about this. On Friday, as Jesus is going to the cross, the Jewish people are commemorating the day of the bread of affliction, which is the bread of redemption and the bread of thanksgiving of Eucharistia. On Friday. That's so cool. Which is amazing. So that's right. happening. That And Mark keeps mentioning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh-huh. Because apparently for Mark, that, that one's really important that uh-huh. he knows, that you know is going on. Yeah. I want to talk about the third feast in a little bit. We'll get okay. to that at the very end. But there's one other feast that kind of falls within this as well. So Jesus does this. He has the, the Last Supper, the Passover feast with his, it was required by law that you would have the Passover in Jerusalem. Everybody had to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, had to go to Jerusalem. So, you know, that's why they have to have this room in, in the city. Um, and right after the Passover, it says, then they go out uh, singing a hymn. So I'm in chapter 14, verse, verse 26. 26. Yeah. Um, so they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, <laughs> which is, you know, they're celebrating this big right. feast and they're singing songs. And he's like, you, you guys are all going to blow it, yeah. which is a bummer to hear yeah. from Jesus. But it's true. So you're all going to fall away for it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, it's Peter who speaks up. And says, even though they're all going to fall away, I will not. Right. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The thing I want to point out about that passage, which many of us have heard before, <laughs> Jesus totally understands that the disciples are going to blow it. He yeah. completely anticipates and understands that Peter is going to deny him. In the midst of his understanding that one of his closest friends is going to deny him at the worst moment of his earthly life, he says, but after that, here's what's going to happen next. And there's other places that he says that to Peter as well. After you fall, I need you to get back up and strengthen the disciples. And it's an insight to me on the way in which God 
deals with our own sin. Yeah. God doesn't like our sin. God's not okay with our sin. Yeah. But he also understands that, okay, once you sin, go to confession, get back up, make yeah. it right, because I got other work for you to do. Right. And I think sometimes I'm tempted to just dwell and sulk in yeah. this pit of despair. And Jesus gives this good, you know, he understands. Yeah. He's not surprised. He's not shocked by it. Right. But he's like, then there's work to do. Yeah. And then, of course, we talked about this before. He goes to this place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he put Peter, James, and John. That's the exact same people who were with him in the transfiguration. Uh So it's precisely the people who had probably the most, the greatest tools to be able to work through this moment. Right. And what was the warning that Jesus gave as we began to enter into the passion narrative? Stay awake. Watch. watch. There's temples that are going to be going down. You need to stay awake and watch. What's the one thing that they could not do? Stay awake and watch. Right. So I think a lot of us focus on, oh, man, what a bunch of boneheads. They fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake, which is something that's important. But I think what's even more important is who's the only one who stays awake and watches? The Lord? Yeah. Which, again, what is he doing? He's doing on our behalf what we could not do. Right. Which is what a good king is supposed to do. He's taking upon himself. So, in other words, you know, again, I don't think he's thrilled. Yeah. But it's okay. That they blew it because Jesus did it. Somebody watched. Somebody stayed awake. Someone was faithful to what he needed to be faithful to. Yeah. Which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. So from here... Things start moving very, very quickly, right? And as the night goes on, then we, Judas, who had slipped out of the Passover meal, as Jesus had predicted, you know, one who dips his, there's a bunch of symbolic foods that are eaten during the Passover meal, Mm -hmm. including foods that would have been, um, uh, greens that would have been dipped into salt water that represent the tears of the people of Israel. Judas dips his food in the representation of the tears of Israel. Mm. And then proceeds to betray Jesus, which is a really powerful scene. And he goes out and he brings the authorities and they find him in the garden. And Judas has the gall to actually create the sign to be his kissing of Jesus. This intimate moment um, with his Lord. That's the sign of his betrayal. So they arrest him. We kind of know the story. They, They put him on the sham trial. It's the middle of the night. It's all done in private under the cover of darkness. Everything's super sketchy about it. Mm-hmm. But I want to fast forward to the moment that he is with the high priests, mm-hmm. right? Um, and now we're, we're approaching Cockrell. And as he's standing before the high priest, I want to pick it up in verse 60. Then the high priest, who would have been Caiaphas, I believe at the time, the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that all these men are testifying against you? They're trying desperately to find something to accuse Jesus of because they need to quiet him. That he's a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer. He's done all. And essentially they're desperate to put some trumped up charges because he's making all of them look bad. Yeah. And all of the attention that he's garnering, especially on a major feast, is is destroying their credibility and they need that. So uh, what, what, do you, what answer have you to make? What does this man, the men are testifying against you? It says verse 61, but he was silent. He made no answer. So again, the high priest asked him. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, but he opened not his mouth, huh? Exactly right. Oh, right. Jesus is direct, the, the uh, suffering servant, servant psalms of, songs of uh, Isaiah, which Jesus is, is fulfilling to a T, we could say. Um, he says, are you the Christ? Remember, Christ it's not Jesus' last name. Right. It's it's a title. So yeah. he's saying, are you the king? Mm-hmm. Are you the anointed one? Right? The son of the blessed. 
that doesn't mean that he's asking Jesus if he's the second person of the Trinity or the son of God. The son of the blessed is a title that the kings held because the understanding was the son of David, the king of Israel, had a special familial relationship with God. So he's asking if he considers himself to be, is he asking him if he considers himself to be the Messiah, the awaited Messiah or the temporal king or those things are the same? Those things are the same. Okay. I think the understanding is that those things are the same. That the Messiah would be the descendant of King David. Now, I I guess I have a question is, this is a people who are anticipating a Messiah. Yeah. So someone has to be. Right. So why is it definitively blasphemy for one to proclaim himself to be? I mean, the simple answer is it's not unless you really... I mean, it is unless you are. Right. Sure. So, yes, somebody is. But sort of this trial is sort of working from the presupposition that it's not possible that Christ could, that the Lord could be the Christ. It's not possible that this guy right. is. Yeah. And, and why? It's because, at least in, in their mindset... Well, once the Messiah comes, surely he will see how awesome we have been and how faithful we have been and how we alone have held down the fort. So he's going to be thrilled with us. And I don't think they can, at the risk of oversimplifying it, I don't think they can wrap their brains around the idea of Messiah who would actually think that they were in the wrong. Calling them to conversion in certain ways. Yeah. We're not the ones who need conversion. Those guys need conversion. Rome needs conversion. Everybody else needs conversion. And again, at the risk of making it sound trite, I mean, I think it's this is a good accusatory <laughs> reflection that we should ask ourselves, you know. And, and is it true also that there just would have been an expectation for the Messiah to be more glorious? Probably. So here's the, here's the problem with the Messiah. <laughs> Not the problem with the Messiah. The problem with the prophecies about the Messiah. Because uh-huh. I think it's easy to look back and say, oh, man, what a bunch of fools. We know all the, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. We know these prophecies. Jesus fulfilled them so clearly. How could people have been so blind to have not seen it, right? But if you read carefully the Old Testament, even Isaiah alone, even if you don't venture beyond Isaiah, we, we looked a few, week, or a few uh, sessions ago about you know, Malachi and Isaiah and these prophecies about the Messiah. If you go through all of the many prophecies about what the Messiah would do and be in the Old Testament, he is going to be a Messiah who defeats all of his enemies. He will have a strong arm. He will be victorious in battle. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, he will be defeated by his enemies. He will be humbled. He will be cut down. He will be scourged and beaten. He will be, you know, this victorious warrior and he will be humble and riding on a donkey. He's, if you read them all together, the prophecies about the Messiah are so seemingly contradictory that out of sanity, you have to kind of pick your favorites and say, well, it must be that. Mm -hmm. So how can the Messiah be victorious and defeat all of his enemies while simultaneously seeming like he's losing and being defeated by his enemies? Yeah. Well, Jesus actually does. He does both. And, And in hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, but again, I propose to you that Thanks be to God that I, I I don't live on the other side of that. I hope that I would have had the eyes. I hope I would have listened to the grace that Jesus was. But I can also appreciate how difficult that would be to look at a series of prophecies that seem to be saying all sorts of contradictory things and say, oh, yeah, that's clear. Sure. It's the same way that, you know, I hope that someday if we make it to the beatific vision, we'll look back on the book of Revelation, for example, and be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. Sure. But on this side of it, it's, yeah. it's harder to do. Yeah. So you have to kind of pick and choose which prophecies you're going to stand with. Yeah. All right. So are you the king, the son of the blessed? So are you the king, essentially the son of David is essentially what he's asking. And Jesus said, 
I am. Jesus answers a question that he didn't ask. He didn't say, are you divine? Are you the right. son of God? Jesus, in response, uses ego in me, which is the divine name, the unspeakable name. Mm. Jesus says, I am. You weren't allowed to say the phrase I am sure. because that was the proper name of God, the tetragrammaton, right? You can't say that. I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. The you that Jesus uses here is not y'all. It's not like everybody's going to see the glory of the Son of Man. He says it second person singular. In other words, high priest, you, you are going to witness this. Yeah. And then what's the response? The high priest ripped his mantle and said, do we need any more witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. He tears his robes, which Leviticus, by the way, forbids the priest from doing. But in this grand show of how outraged he is, he tears his robes and he says, do we need anything else? Yeah. I propose to you, though, what he is tearing his robes at is not simply the use of the divine name. Mm. That might be a part of it. And I think that's very convenient for him that he can throw that at Jesus. But I think there's something else going on. So the term son of man, which is what Jesus uses here, the term son of man is the most repeated term for Jesus that's used in the gospels. It's the most common term, but it's only used by Jesus himself. He and he alone calls himself that. And I think there's a couple layers of meaning to it. The son of man, I mean, it, it maybe speaks to his humanity that Jesus is fully human. But I think in a deeper way than that, it points to a prophecy, speaking of prophecies, from the book of Daniel. So I'm going to turn there really quick. There was a prophecy in the book of Daniel that at the time was incredibly popular because every it spoke to this historical moment okay. that they were living in and what was going to happen. And what it says in Daniel is this. So Daniel chapter 7, um, it's a scene where Daniel has a dream and sees a vision of all these beasts. And Daniel, if you don't know Daniel, Daniel is a book that was written by a guy who was taken off into slavery in the Babylonian exile. When Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Daniel was hauled off into slavery and actually given a weirdly cushy job as a, as a bureaucrat in the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And so the book of Daniel is a book about how do you live a faithful life in the midst of this oppression and, and being enslaved in a place that we're far from home yeah. and far from the God as, as we know him. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful book in that sense. But Daniel, Daniel, you also might remember from being thrown into this den of lions and surviving. Sure. And kind of hot on the heels of being thrown into a den of lions, which, yes, he survived, but it probably would have been a little bit freaky. Uh -huh. um, Daniel has a dream yeah. a little bit later on and it happens to have to do with animals and beasts attacking, yeah. <laughs> which is not coincidental. Yeah. So it's in chapter 7 and it says Daniel uh, was he, – he lay down. He went to sleep one night and he had this dream. And it says, in his dream, in, the, in my visions at night, I saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea and four beasts rose up out of the sea. Now for the Jewish people and throughout the Old Testament, the sea is always sort of a symbol of chaos, mm. right? It's, it's uncontrollable. You don't know what's down there. You don't know what's going to eat you. I know that a lot of the apostles were fishermen, but it wasn't a super common occupation, right? Mm -hmm. In Israel, they were not a particularly seafaring people because mm -hmm. the sea was a sign of threat. Sure. And so Daniel sees the symbol of chaos and out of the chaos comes four animals. He says the first one, it kind of looked like a lion and it goes on to describe it. The second one looked like a bear. The third one looked like a leopard. And it says the fourth one was indescribable. It was terrible and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had strong teeth and it was destroying. It was, it was just horrifying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fresh out of the lion's den, Daniel has a nightmare where he sees four beasts rising up out of the earth. Yeah. Later on, he sees an angel hanging out. So if you're ever in a bad dream and you don't know what's going on, see if you can find an angel. That so Daniel like does. Right do. This seems like the right thing to do. And he's like, what's going on? And the, Daniel, uh, the uh, angel tells Daniel, oh, these four beasts represent four kings or four nations mm -hmm. that will rise up out of the earth and basically have control. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you, if you know that's the case and you kind of work <coughs> historically backwards, Daniel was living during the time of the Babylonian Empire. They were the reigning world superpower. Yeah. And sometimes in art and in their literature, they were described as lions. Uh-huh. So it makes sense that the first animal, beast, represents Babylon. Uh-huh. And if that's true, the Babylonians were eventually conquered by the Persians. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the Persians are represented by this bear. The yeah. Persians were later on defeated by the Greek Empire, which is probably represented by the lion. Uh-huh. And of course, the Greeks fell to whom? The Romans. The Romans, mm-hmm. who were the ones in charge in the time of Jesus. And yeah. so this terrible and exceedingly dreadful and strong beast is probably the Empire of Rome, which was the most powerful and terrifying empire the world had ever seen. Mm-hmm. So in the midst of this dream and these beasts kind of doing all these things, something happens during the reign of the fourth beast. And what Daniel says in his dream, he says, In my night visions I saw and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's that There's that uh, term. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory and kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It will never pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So in other words, this dream that Daniel has, which again, by the time of Jesus, was real popular. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. Is there a sense that the high priest is representative of God the Father in in the prophecy? He might think of himself that like way. In this narrative here, is he is effectively the vicar of God the Father in the sort of religious schema? Yes, I think, yes, in a certain sense, he would think of himself that way. Okay. Which is important because of how Jesus is going to then yeah. sort of flip the narrative. Right. But I think that's probably, he's not the Ancient of Days. Sure. But in a certain sense, he represents or, the Ancient okay. of Days. He, he stands on behalf of the Ancient of Days. Because okay. there's no Davidic king, right. so it falls to the high priest okay. in a certain sense. Um, so... What this prophecy or this vision said was that during, really, during the reign of the Roman Empire, the Son of Man is going to come and God's kingdom will come back and it will be everlasting and it will defeat the fourth beast and everything will be great again. Which is why, as you can imagine, this was being read in a lot of synagogues at the time. It's very popular. But if you read on, there's one other thing that happens because all is not as well as it sounds. And if you read on Daniel chapter 7, it says... This son of man, this one like a son of man, was going to be handed over, delivered up. I like handed over. It's a better translation. He was going to be delivered to, handed over to the fourth beast. And the fourth beast would destroy him. Oh, so rather than the high priest being the ancient of, being representative of the ancient of days, the high priest is representative of Rome, of the empire. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Well, hang with it for a sec. Okay. So... The Son of Man was going to be handed over to the fourth beast, Uh and he would be destroyed by the fourth beast. It says for a time and two times and half a time. So in other words, three periods of time, he would be destroyed before he comes back victorious and conquers everything. This is the prophecy. Uh So where is Jesus at that moment? He has been handed over. Uh The the word in Greek for hand over is paradidus, which actually rhymes with the name judus, which you can almost think of as the hander overer. Yeah. So Jesus has just been paradiduced, not to the fourth beast, at least not in the way everyone expects the fourth beast, right. but to the high, the high beast, the high priest. Right. Um, so in other words, is the fourth beast Rome or is it the high priest? Is it the people of God? Is it a little right. more confusing or a little bigger than we thought the fourth beast was? So the context is a, an indictment that's rather disturbing for the high priest. Which is, I think, why the high priest rips his mantle and gets really, really ticked yeah. off. It's not just that, oh, he spoke the holy name. Sure. It's that you just called me the fourth beast of Daniel. Sure. And that's what it took. Yeah. That's what ushers wow. Jesus into the cross. Wow. 
which is a fascinating scene. So Jesus goes to the crucifixion. Again, it's morning. So we're in the fourth watch of the parable he gave in chapter 13. He is taken up to the cross. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about the crucifixion scene is that, remember, Jesus's accusation, his indictment on the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was that it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but it became a den of lestai, of revolutionaries. Now Jesus is hanging on the cross like a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who the first person to proclaim the lordship of Jesus was at the cross? It was a Roman centurion, which is, in a certain sense, your first tangible sign of Jesus becoming the house of prayer for all the nations, which is precisely what the old temple was not. So everything begins to come to fruition. There's a a beautiful moment where Jesus speaks the words of Psalm 22, where he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I don't believe personally is Jesus falling into despair. Uh, a rabbinic technique that was often used is that you would often, a rabbi would often quote the first part of a scripture passage mm-hmm. as a way of evoking the rest. Yeah. And Psalm 22 begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. And goes on to tell the story of a righteous man who seemed like he was abandoned and turned away and destroyed, but who in the end is vindicated by God and glorified. Mm-hmm. And I think Jesus is fully in capacity of his, of his wits and his senses. And yeah. he's actually teaching from the cross mm-hmm. what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then he's crucified and yeah. he's killed and all seems lost. Mm-hmm. The way I want to end our time together is um, mentioning what I mentioned before, which is the third feast, yeah. which fell in kind of the, the triduum, so to speak, of Passover. I don't know if it's fair to call it a triduum, but I'm going to call it anyway. So this one's weird because, number one, it almost never gets talked about. Number two, it doesn't seem possible to celebrate anymore. And number three, historically, it seems to have been completely subsumed into Passover mm-hmm. and unleavened bread. But what Leviticus says is this, and this is, again, there's some debate among scholars about what's going on here. But what Leviticus says is that there's this third feast. So there's Passover Mm -hmm. on the 14th day. Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th, lasts for eight days. And what Leviticus says, and again, there's debate about when this actually happened because we just don't know. The first, okay, hang with me on this. The day after the first Sabbath after the Passover was when they were supposed to celebrate this feast. Which is a bit of a backwards way of describing it. The Monday after, so the Monday after no, no. Easter Monday. No, 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 no. I know. I'm just trying to analogize it to something for us. It would be like, oh, 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 yeah. Like the Monday the after, wrong. not not Easter Monday, but the Monday after. That, yeah, something like if that. If we wanted to think about it. Yeah, that exactly. Okay, right. The first Monday in January, maybe, would be if, if we were thinking about Christmas. Something that works. Like that, yeah, something okay. like that. Got it. So you have Passover, right? And after Passover would come a Sabbath. Sabbath yeah. is on Saturday for the Jews. The day after that, oh, okay. we were supposed to celebrate the feast of the feast of Bikurim, which the is the feast, feast of, of first fruits. First fruits. Okay. Um, now the debate comes with there are some scholars that are like, well, maybe it was celebrated after they were done with unleavened bread. So after those eight days, then the first Sabbath, or we don't know. Yeah. And different groups of Jews, I think, maybe celebrate on different days. But what seems most logical to me and most likely, even though we don't know for sure is that the day of Bikurim, of first fruits, would, if it's the day after the first Sabbath after the Passover, would have fallen on Easter Sunday. Mm. And if that's true, what, what is Bikurim? What is first fruits? Well, again, Leviticus tells us very little. It tells us a couple of things, but we have these other Jewish writings from the time. They give a little bit more color commentary on what they actually did. And what the feast did was this. So on that morning of the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, 
the a group of people called the Mahamad, and we don't know exactly who that is, but we think it might have been like the kids of the Levitical, Levitical priests, so maybe okay. these children. Their job was to go and camp out on the edges of the field. And where we are in the in the year, um, it's the very, 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 very beginning of the spring harvest. And in the Holy Land, there's two harvest times. When you would harvest um, the wheat and the barley. Okay. And the other harvest in the fall is when you would bring the oils and the grapes. Okay. All of the harvests in uh, the Holy Land and all the feasts that surround them have to do with sacramentals. Either wheat, oil, or grapes. So this is the feast where or this is the time when you would be about to harvest the wheat. And so the children, the Mahamad, would camp out around the periphery of the fields. And right before sunrise, before as the sun was about to break, they would get up and they would scan out over the field, over the of the farmland. And you know that in like early spring when you look out on a garden or something or even your your yard and you can tell like early in the morning like there's a little tiny shoot. It's always dandelions in my front yard. The dandelions always start to kind of pop mm-hmm. up out of nowhere. But there's a moment you can kind of catch like the moment that they're coming up. Uh-huh. That's what they would look for. Mm. Where Who's going to see the first tiny little shoot of barley coming up out of the ground? Mm. And they would run out to it, the first, literally the first fruits. And they would find the first little little fruit. And they would dig it up out of the ground and they would bring this little omer, it was called. They would bring it out and they would have a massive parade, a procession. The people would be there. They would bring the animals. They would put like jewelry on the animals. They would have trumpets and instruments. And they would process from the farm to Jerusalem where the high priest would be waiting to receive the omer, the first fruit of barley, from the children. When he would take it into the temple, he would hold it with his hands and he would do what was called the wave offering. Which, the best as I can tell, would be holding it in two hands and waving it back and forth in front of the Holy of Holies. Thanking God for the fact that God has brought what looked like it was dead back to life. The earth looked like it had gone to sleep. The earth looked like our fruit, our food, our, our crops were dead and now God has brought them back. It's the first, it's called the first fruits because it's literally the first thing out of the ground as we wait for what is to come. And it would have this massive fanfare and celebration. They would eat leavened bread on that day to remember all that God had done. So this is all true. There is reason to believe that as Jesus was coming up from the dead, all around him across the valley would be singing and praise and shouts and celebration of God bringing back to life what looked like it was dead. They would be singing Psalm 30, which has to do with my soul going down into the pit and God bringing and vindicating that which was dead back to life. And if this is true, and if that did really get celebrated on that day, Jesus would literally be listening to those songs and those shouts as he was coming back to life. Wow. Which I think the first time I heard that, and I know we have to to guess at the dates a little bit. I was brought to tears the first time I actually heard that because we talk a lot about Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Right. But the degree to which he fulfills them, you know, to a T, you know, the dotting the I's and crossing the T is remarkable to me if that's actually the case. But what it also means is that the resurrection from the dead, the crucifixion and what happens is not fully unprecedented. It was not unexpected. It was not unprepared for. Maybe it was unexpected, Mm -hmm. but God had been preparing the scene. He'd been preparing us liturgically through nature, through everything else for thousands of years. Talk about Jesus having the guy ready with the jar of water, though. God the Father had. Yes. God the Father had. ready to sing Psalm 30. Yes. Wow. And the last thing I'll say about that, just because this is a good point to end, that feast is, again, the first fruits. It's the, the big the tiny little sheaf that would eventually be something else. 
the gospel ends, the gospel of Mark, but all the gospels essentially end on a weird note. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to the apostles. He ascends into heaven. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. now what? Yeah. The, the, the fruit isn't really born. You know, the parable of the sower that we talked about, where's the 60 fold and 30 fold and a hundred fold fruit. Well, it doesn't show up until acts of the apostles. Yeah. And Acts of the Apostles gives us the story of Pentecost. Yeah. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is a Jewish feast, before it was a Christian one, a Jewish feast that was celebrated 50 days after what? Most people think Passover. That's what I was going to say. Bikurim. Oh. Exactly 50 days after that, because Passover is the other end of Bikurim. Oh. And it is the day that they bring in the rest of the harvest. Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost. What, what did I say? Passover. So, sorry. Pentecost. It's when they complete the harvest that was started on first fruits. Wow. And they bring in all that had finally come out of the ground and grown. And then they have a big kind of Jewish Thanksgiving, a big harvest wow. festival. So what's the significance? Well, in Bikurim, if that really is what's happening, Jesus is the first fruits yeah. of what will come later on. When does it come? Well, for the early church, it comes on Pentecost. It comes 50 days later when yeah. the disciples are finally enlivened by the gift of the Holy Spirit and yeah. 3,000 people are baptized in one pop. Ah, the rest of the harvest that Jesus Whoa. began comes in 50 days later. And thus the church goes on from there. That is so cool. Thanks be to God. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Sunday School. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. And guys, this was the final episode of Sunday School about the Gospel of Mark. We have really enjoyed doing this first season. I really, really pray that it has been fruitful for you, that it has helped you to better know Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I hope it was as spiritually fruitful for you as it has been for us. In our second season, as we get ready for Advent, Scott will teach me all about the infancy narratives of Jesus Christ. We plan to release the first episode in the next few weeks, just in time for Advent. And listen, do me a favor. If you like Sunday School, share it with your friends and family. Leave us a rating and a review. Let people know how good this podcast is. We think this is a really cool project. We hope that it helps you to know the Lord, and we want to share it with as many people as possible. So thanks, everybody. See you in a few weeks.